Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In October 1992, an indie movie called Reservoir Dogs landed in theaters. Let's go to work. It was the first film by an unknown writer and director named Quentin Tarantino. He was just 29. We're going to be using aliases on this job. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Reservoir Dogs was bold. The dialogue, showy and confident. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Why can't we pick our own colors? Try it once, it doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. Pam went to see it. In one scene, four gangsters are driving down an L.A. street. One of them says a familiar name. What's the name of the chick who played Christy Love? Pam Greer. Well, it wasn't Pam Greer. Pam Greer was the other one. Pam Greer did the film. Christy Love was like a Pam Greer TV show without Pam Greer. So who was Christy I was in the theater in Manhattan, and he mentioned my name, and the whole theater went crazy. Pam was surprised Tarantino knew who she was. A few months later, she learned he was casting a new film, also set in L.A.'s criminal underworld. It was called Pulp Fiction. What happened here was a miracle, and I want you to fucking acknowledge it. All right, it was a miracle. Can we go now? Then I get, all of a sudden, an invitation to interview, audition for Pulp Fiction. And they said, you got to go. Quentin loves you. He has all of your posters in, in his office. So Pam came in there, and she came walking in, and I'm like, acting like a geek. Oh, here's... Queen Greer, all right, has just entered the building. And I all hail the Queen. That's Quentin Tarantino. And Pam had some of the best posters, so there was like a ton of Pam Greer posters all over the office. And it was impressive and daunting to see five or six huge, very expensive posters on his wall. And then she goes, okay, so tell me, did you put all these posters up because you knew I was coming in? And I go, Actually, I almost took them down because I knew you were coming <laughs> Pam auditioned. Quentin told her she wasn't quite right for the role. But we talked. He said, you know, everything works, but you know what? Maybe I should just work with you at another time. I said, that's fine. Pam took it in stride, and she figured this was the last time she'd ever hear from Quentin Tarantino. Here's Quentin on The Charlie Rose Show in 1997. One of the worst things that happens in Hollywood is a very uncreativeness when it comes to casting. And part of that is you basically have the same names on this list that the studio makes. I have a good memory, all right? I've got a much longer list, and the only thing you need to be on that list is a good actor. Quentin's list was full of talented people, but many were a gamble when it came to ticket sales, a big gamble. That didn't matter to him. His list was personal. And Pam Greer? She was right at the top. (music) 
I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer, and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. This is Episode 7, Miss Jackie Brown. The years leading up to that Pulp Fiction audition weren't great for Pam. She has fewer roles because of the way that these black exploitation films tapered off. That's Jacqueline Stewart, a TCM host and director of the Academy Museum. It was the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was president, telling us that the 70s were over. It's morning again in America. It was morning in America. We're going to keep on with what we're doing. It was a decade of excess of a culture that proclaimed greed is good. And Hollywood fell in love with the blockbuster. It created a sensation. Jaws. See it. When blockbusters like Jaws and the Star Wars series kind of get Hollywood back on its feet, then it moves back toward focusing on so-called mainstream audiences. And it becomes really, really difficult for black creatives to um, to find footing in Hollywood for a long time. I didn't get a lot of the, the opportunities because I'm too tall, I'm too dark, I'm, my boobs are too big or my butt's too big or it's not flat enough. And, you know, so whatever reason. Pam did have a guest role on the ultimate 1980s show, Miami Vice. What was I supposed to do, Rachel Turner in for murder? She played a cop avenging the murder of her sister. Sound familiar? As hard as Pam tried, she kept getting cast in the same types of roles. So Pam switched it up. She did some theater. Piano lesson, Frankie Johnny the Claire de Lune, Fool for Love, the one at the New Negro Ensemble in New Jersey and Newark. Pam was determined to keep her career going. Then in 1986, a movie called She's Gotta Have It hit theaters. It was the first film from a young writer and director named Spike Lee. It's time for you to grow up. Grow up? Yeah. You know, no, you've done me wrong. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Nola. She's Gotta Have It broke new ground, inspiring a new era of independent cinema and an era of black independent cinema. But Pam wouldn't get a chance to be a part of that. It was the summer of 1988. Pam went to the gynecologist for her annual checkup. And uh, they found, you know, some cells and did a biopsy and said, "Ah, okay, we're going to have surgery in three weeks because we found some topical cancer cells uh, on your cervix. And I'm going, oh, wow, wow, okay. The diagnosis was cervical cancer. Pam was 39 years old and incredibly healthy. She exercised every day, ate good food, barely drank. Pam always believed in being prepared was how she dealt with the messiness of life, the things she can't control. She was not prepared for cancer. It was daunting because it's something you didn't see. You didn't see symptoms. You didn't have pain. It just snuck up on you. That's a that's kind of stealth. That's, that's, that's the quietest, you know, upcoming impending death. And I had to prepare myself mentally. Pam called her mom, who was still working as a nurse. 
And she, after she got off the phone, I heard that she was sobbing. And then when she flew to California to meet with my my doctors, a team of, you know, my gynecologists, my oncologists, and and she knew exactly what they were saying. And she had this quiet mood vibe about her of complete, this is danger, this is, this is not good. And um, so we had the surgery and they decided to do a 360 biopsy of the surrounding area and they found more cancer. And they said, well, you're supposed to heal first, but in this case, it's extreme that we remove every area that has cells. Three weeks later, Pam had another surgery to remove her uterus, which meant she would never be able to get pregnant. That it is a very special love to grow a child in your body and feel that and know you're responsible for their development. And I think about it, I said, wow. I mean, I think about it, I would say, you know, every month, how wonderful it would have felt to have created a, a human in my body. But I did harvest my eggs. Adoption was an option. But I needed to have a partner while I'm working, a Mr. Mom, raising the child or children. After the surgery, Pam put all of that aside. She had to. So I knew that I had to focus on just surviving. But I I had my moments where I was so sick. You just, you know, so much had been removed from my body. The doctor said, you're not going to die of cancer, you'll die of infection. As soon as she could travel, Pam left Los Angeles and moved back to Denver. And I remember going home and having the driver help me out to my mom's house. I was still pretty sore and I've got to recuperate and uh, start my life over in Colorado. When do you stop worrying about it? Is there a moment when you're like, I think I'm okay. I can think about the future. There is a moment where you've had your last exam and your biopsy and your MRIs. Has it spread to your bones? Has it spread to your bone marrow, your organs? And they said, hasn't spread. That's a good sign. It's not in your bone marrow. That's even a better sign. And they're giving you the results of your tests that give you that confidence that you may, you may see the finish line. Pam spent her recovery focusing on what was right in front of her. She didn't think about Hollywood. And every day, my eyes opened, and there's a blue sky, birds outside, maybe some snow, like four feet of it. And you know what? The first snowfall that I experienced while I was, you know, in within maybe the 18th month, not even then. I went outside in my pajamas and I just fell in the snow. And it felt so good that I'm alive. This feels really good. What can I do from here? That was a good day. Eventually, there would be more good days than bad. 
Soon, she would face life after illness and rebuild her acting career as a woman in her early 40s. That was not going to be easy. Pam started taking the occasional audition, like the one for Pulp Fiction. She did a walk-on part here and there. There was so much going on in treatment and therapy and diet and setbacks and blood work and this and that. I didn't know if I'd have the memory to memorize dialogue or remember my craft. By 1994, Pam started accepting roles. 20 years after the heyday of black exploitation films, a movie called Original Gangsters was in the works in Hollywood. It starred legends of the black exploitation era, Fred Williamson, Richard Roundtree, and of course, Pam Greer. What are we gonna do with this little punk? We can't shoot him in a community rec center. Besides, we gotta make it look like it's an accident. Pam also landed two smaller roles with famous Hollywood directors. In Tim Burton's Mars Attacks. Byron, there's Martians everywhere. And in John Carpenter's cult classic, Escape from L.A. Snake Plissken is back in John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. As for Quentin Tarantino, well, Pulp Fiction wasn't just a hit. It was a defining film of the decade. When they added up the best 10 list compiled by hundreds of American film critics, the fiction film that placed highest was Pulp Fiction. Check out the big brain on bread. It cost $8.5 million to make and grossed $100 million in North America alone. It won the Palme d'Or, the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1994. And the Oscar goes to Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery for Palm. And Quentin won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. By the spring, Quentin was working on his next project, a screenplay based on the novel Rum Punch, a book written by a master of hard-boiled crime fiction, Elmore Leonard. Rum Punch is about a blonde flight attendant named Jackie Burke who smuggles cash for a gunrunner in Florida. Quentin thought about all the actors who could play Jackie. And then I started asking myself what the movie needed and who Jackie was. And I go, well... She's an absolute knockout, but she's on the late side of her 40s, and she looks like it, but in a good way. And she's the smartest person in the story, absolutely. And she can handle anything. And then I just said out loud to myself, I just said out loud, well, that sounds like Pam Greer. Quentin kept writing with Pam in mind. Then they ran into each other in the summer of 1994. I bump into him on a street in Hollywood somewhere and I'm driving and I'm with another producer and the producer says, hey, that's Quentin Tarantino. And so my friend leans out the window and he says, hey, Quentin, come over here. And he says, it's Pam Greer over here. And he goes, oh, and so he jogs down to the car. I go, hey, look, got this thing that I'm writing for you. I think think it's going to be really exciting for you. I think you're going to find it really special. She goes, well, I'm doing some good stuff now. I'm in, like, I've got a good part in Mars Attacks. I've got a good part in Escape from L.A. I'm working with John Carpenter, Tim Burton, and I'm just like, fuck all that shit. (laughs) That ain't shit. Wait till you see what I got for you. She's, okay, we'll see. Once again, Pam was skeptical. Quentin finished the screenplay, and instead of Rum Punch, he titled it Jackie Brown, a nod to Foxy Brown, Pam's most famous role. He wanted the movie 
to be an homage to black exploitation films. But not coming from a 1972, 73, 74 black exploitation feeling, but coming from a real person situation. This is the 90s, and this is real. And the music can be wah wah, uh, funkity funkity, and my bad guy can be flamboyant and everything. But this takes place in a real world. And I even like the idea of even Jackie Brown, I'm, look, she's not coffee, but the idea that like, a coffee or a Foxy Brown has lived a life. And the life she's lived has led her to this. And now we're picking up the story 20 years later. Quentin sent the script to Pam, who was staying in New York at the time. I don't even send it Federal Express. I send it, like, with stamps and drop it in a mailbox. But he didn't put enough stamps on it. There was postage due. And it was 44 cents due. New York ain't giving up nothing unless you leave some money at the post office, so... I had the money, I, was, I taped it to the, the notice, handed it to the postman, he handed me a manila envelope, it was from Q, Q Tarantino, and I went, oh my God, this is the script he sent me. So I opened it and there, there is Jackie Brown. I was anxiously waiting because I've been, you know, this had been this little private present that I've been writing for Pam for like three or four months. And so it was present day and she was going to open it up and I was going to hear what she had to say. And so I read it. It was awesome. It was absolutely brilliant. I call her up like three days later or something like that. And she goes, okay, so what part are you thinking about me for? Who do you think? Well, you mean Jackie Brown? But I just didn't think it was for me. What I really didn't believe is like, okay, I'm Jackie Brown. And then he started mentioning, and Sam Jackson, and, and Michael Keaton, and, and Robert De Niro, and Bridget. I'm like, really? They've, they've come aboard, really? He says, yeah. Pam was stunned. 20 years after Foxy Brown, Pam wondered if this was finally her big break. Coming up on The Plot Thickens. That was the interesting thing. I cast her for her persona and her iconic aspect and then proceeded to tear it down. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Okay, ready guys? Here we go. So you're starting off uh, pretty provocative with this first little tidbit. Okay, action. Well before shooting began, Pam learned Quentin Tarantino liked to rehearse. And he said, I want everybody off book by the time we start filming. And I said, okay, I can do that. Off book means the actor no longer needs the script. All their lines are memorized. I was ready off book on every damn page. And so he could call him at any time and say, we ready to go, we ready to go. No easy feat for a Quentin Tarantino movie. 
He's known for writing long stretches of dialogue. This is actor Sam Jackson from a documentary about the making of Jackie Brown. There's a very distinctive style, and not only that, all of his scripts have words in them. There aren't like 14 pages of descriptives. They advertised this tech man as the most popular gun in American crime. Can you believe that shit? Quentin also rehearsed all the long shots he wanted in the movie, and there are several of them. He walked Pam through the marks she'd have to hit. It's 15 minutes long, so I don't want to cut. So every take has to be 15 minutes long, rehearsed. You hit the light, you hit the point, you turn the light up, turn the light down, hit the refrigerator, get the glass out there, and don't miss it. You got some booze? I got some vodka in the freezer. Got some OJ? Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you be a good hostess and look a brother up a screwdriver? Sure. And like, how many takes we gonna do on this one, Quentin? <laughs> I can only do a couple. And he would look at, well, you're gonna do as many as I want. I said, oh, okay. Well, this is gonna be a duel here. Pam's Jackie Brown is a flight attendant for a second-rate airline. She makes extra money smuggling cash for gunrunner and sociopath Ordell Roby, played by Sam Jackson. This your money? What if I say no? <laughs> Two ATF agents nab her early in the film but they really want Ordell and his gun-running operation. Who in Mexico gave you this money, and who in America were you bringing it to? I'm not saying another goddamn word. Jackie comes up with a plan to outsmart the cops and Ordell, but she needs help to keep Ordell from killing her. Here's Sam Jackson. I've watched Pam for a long time. I guess the first time I was standing there rehearsing with her, and I had my hands on her throat. I'm sitting there saying, I'm about to chill coffee. This is kind of, it's kind of chilly to be there and doing that. And it's kind of exciting in the, in the same breath. And it's kind of hard not to fall in love with the one you're standing there looking at. How you doing, Miss Jackie? Come on in. I was really into the realism of Jackie Brown. And so one of the things that was important to me that even when we found the apartment that Jackie Brown lived in, I knew how much Jackie Brown made a year. So Jackie had to be able to afford that apartment or I wouldn't have shot there. And so to find an apartment she could afford that that would be big enough to actually put a crew in there was not easy, but we did. Quentin had literally painted that apartment several times to be the right color paint for my uniform or for my skin color and for the drama, for the effect. Quentin had framed photographs put on the wall in Jackie's apartment. Those look like Pam Greer family photos, are they? Yes, they are. My grandfather, my grandmother, my mom, my, my brother, when we were in Denver or somewhere, yeah, they were my family pictures, which gave me, you know, a little bit of grounding. Hey, Candy. Hey, Max. Picking up brown, Jackie. Okay, no problem. You armed? Uh, you bet I am. Quentin also cast the actor Robert Forster as Max Cherry a bail bondsman who helps Jackie scheme. He also falls in love with her. I'm Max Cherry, your bail bondsman. I could give you a lift home if you like. I love the scene with you and Robert Forster at the kitchen table. I did also. And the first take was brilliant where the crew applauded. They loved that scene so much. Would you like some coffee? The scene takes place in the morning. Max Cherry has come to Jackie's apartment to check on her. She puts a Delphonics record on her stereo and pours some coffee. Jackie asks Max how he feels about getting older. Look in the mirror. Looks like me. Yeah, but it's different from you. You know, 
I can't really feel too sorry for you in this department. I'd bet that except for possibly an afro, you look exactly the way you did at 29. Well, my ass ain't the same. Bigger. <laughs> yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Something else worry you? Um, I always feel like I'm starting over. I've thought about this scene often over the years, how vulnerable the characters are with each other, how authentic and natural Pam and Robert Forster are together. Now, the dialogue might resonate on a personal level with these two middle-aged actors. Well, I've flown over seven million miles and I've been waiting on people for 20 years. And after my bus, the best job I could get was with Cabo Air, which is the worst job you could get in this industry. You know, I make 16000 a year, plus retirement benefits that ain't worth a damn. And with this arrest hanging over my head, Max, I'm scared. And if I lose this job, I gotta start all over again, and I ain't got nothing to start over with. I'll be stuck with whatever I can get. And that shit is more scary than Ordell. While filming the scene at the kitchen table, Pam's instincts led her to cry as she opened up to Max Cherry. Pam thought she nailed it. The crew applauded. But Quentin wanted another take. She was happy because the, the emotion took her there, and she had it, and she went with it. And I wouldn't want her to stop that. That's a take and everything. But that's just not right for the scene. And why didn't that work for Jackie? She's in trouble, but she's not full of self-pity. She's, she's getting cornered. Like a feral animal, she's getting cornered, but she's not saying woe is me. This made me wonder how Quentin directed Pam, the kind of notes he gave her. You know, frankly, at the end of the day, I think it's just, you know, slow down. Slow down. We got time. We got time. We got time to do the scene right. You don't have to rush. We're fine. Just take your time. Okay, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. Don't worry about trying to get to it too fast. Pam went to the Jackie Brown set as much as she could, even on the days she didn't have scenes, just like she did in the Philippines with Jack Hill. I'm a student. When you go behind the camera and you can shadow people, you can see what goes on from another perspective, and that goes in my book of what I want to do. She was tickled pink. She was like, oh, can I go home early? No, she didn't want to go home early. She didn't want this thing to ever fucking end. All right, she was having a ball. And she knew to lead. There's a thing about when you cast a lead actor. There is a th there's a thing about a lead actor. They need to lead. They need to lead by example. They are the lead of the film. They kind of, you know, they're sort of like the director a little bit. What they do matters. Yeah, what they do really matters. And they need to kind of help lead this production. They need to give it a, a, a true north. On the last day of shooting for Jackie Brown, a crew member called it a wrap. Pam was still wearing her flight attendant costume. Champagne bottles were passed around. And then, almost immediately, the cast and crew started chanting. She felt an incredible sense of accomplishment. You know, I made sure I did my homework, and it paid off. And it's exhausting, but it's wonderful.
Pam hadn't been the lead actor in a movie since 1975, 22 years. This time, though, the stakes felt higher. Like there might not be another chance like this. Now she had to wait until Christmas Day, when Jackie Brown would arrive in theaters. Coming up on The Plot Thickens... Here we go. Jackie Brown is out. Pamela Greer is... Jackie Brown. And Pam hopes for the best. Anyone going to the movies that Christmas in 1997 would have realized something from the opening moments of Jackie Brown. This was Pam Greer's movie. The first shot is a long one. Pam's in profile. She's wearing a flight attendant uniform. She's on a people mover at LAX, the Los Angeles airport. The music is Bobby Womack's Across 110th Street, an anthem of the exploitation era, and a nod to Pam's life before movies, singing backup for Womack. The credits pop up in the same yellow bubble font that was used for Foxy Brown. I wanted to sound like a Pam Greer movie. I wanted to have a Pam Greer opening credit sequence. I want the poster to reflect a Pam Greer poster. There are little nods to exploitation films throughout Jackie Brown. When Jackie is arrested and has to spend time in jail, Pam's rendition of Long Time Woman plays. When she goes to her bond hearing, her old 1970s co-star, Sid Haig, is the judge. Charge is possession of narcotics with the intent to distribute. How does your client plead? And so she's in the court. She's, like, dressed in her jumpsuit and everything. And the minute Sid came walking out <laughs> in the judge's outfit, she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> she goes, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> when Jackie goes to Ordell's apartment building, she has to get buzzed in. There's a close-up of Pam's finger moving down the list of residents. She passes over an S. Haig and a J. Hill. Shout-outs to Sid Haig and Jack Hill. What? Jackie Brown. These little Easter eggs were for the fans of exploitation films. I should admit here that Jackie Brown is one of my favorite movies. I can watch those characters talk to each other all day. There are pieces of acting in Jackie Brown that I think are some of the best in modern cinema. After spending hours talking to Pam, I was curious, maybe even a bit nervous, to hear how she felt about the movie. And when I saw for my craft, I said, okay, I did okay. I did all right. I'm good. I'm good. You were proud proud. of yourself. Very proud. And even more so today as I look back and see the work and what it took to be disciplined to work with him. For the most part, audiences and critics also like Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is on dozens of 1997's 10 best lists. Some complained that it was too long. The one thing they all seemed to like, though, was Pam. Evoked by stunningly good performances, 
from B-movie icon of the 70s, Pam Greer. There's a real centre to it. I mean, Pam Greer uh, as a central character is marvellous. It's a real good performance because Pam Greer actually is much more glamorous in real life than she is in this movie well, and more energetic. Too. It's, a, it's a performance. Yeah, we get to see her as a thinking, planning, self-directed person. So I think that it was a, a revelation to a lot of people about what she was capable of doing as an actor. In 1997, Pam was on the Charlie Rose show to promote Jackie Brown. He asked her what she hoped the movie would achieve. And if the audience enjoys it and they they feel what I've felt and I have brought, given depth and texture and color and pain and all kinds of emotionality of mine to Jackie and people can feel it. At the end of the day, all I wanted to do was a good job. It didn't take long for the awards chatter to start. Pam was nominated for a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award, which meant she had momentum for the Oscars. Here to unveil our nominees for the 70th annual... On February 10th, 1998, the Academy announced its nominees. For best performance by an actress in a leading role, the nominees are Julie Christie in Afterglow. The best actress race for the early 1998 season was stacked. That's TCM host Dave Carger. He's also the awards correspondent for Entertainment Weekly and The Today Show. And it was Judi Dench, Helena Bonham Carter, Kate Winslet, Helen Hunt, and Julie Christie. All very good actors who gave fine performances that year. But so did Pam. I didn't into a race or do Jackie Brown to win an Oscar. I did it to do the work. Pam had very little interest in talking about this, but I think the context matters here. If Pam had been nominated, she would have been only the seventh black woman nominated for Best Actress in 70 years, and she would have been the first black actress to win. So I think this was back in the time when the Academy was not as diverse as it is now. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the five women who were nominated over Pam Greer are white, and that one, two, three, four of them are British. That was the MO of the Academy, by and large, at that time. I think in another year, and quite frankly, in a more recent year, a performance like that from Pam Greer would have been nominated. And the Oscar goes to Helen Hunt is as good as it gets. Helen Hunt ended up winning in 1998 for her role in As Good As It Gets, We can only speculate about what an Oscar nomination or win would have done for Pam's career. On one hand, it would have given her an instant credibility beyond anything she had ever done in the classic iconic films that she did. On the other hand, you often hear stories like from Halle Berry, who became the first black actress to win that category. She talks very openly about how even winning didn't really do much for her career. Even then, we're talking in the early 2000s now, Even then, there were not the roles existing for black actresses. Most artists work for decades to become an icon. Pam made a few movies in the 1970s in quick succession, and suddenly she was iconic. It took decades after that, a lot of roles and a ton of work, to finally get mainstream praise. Columbia film professor Raquel Gates. The humanity, the complexity, the fragility, the vulnerability was always there. And it was always there if you looked for it. But it's more highlighted. It's more made the focus and the central aspect of a film like Jackie Brown. Ever been tempted? What? Put one of these in my pocket? Mm Mm-hmm. 
It's about that character's, her sort of reemergence from the margins, but it's also about the reestablishment of Pam Greer as a Hollywood icon. After Jackie Brown, Pam worked often. She got supporting roles, like in Jane Campion's Holy Smoke, and she played Eddie Murphy's mother in The Adventures of Pluto Nash. In 2002, Showtime was considering a groundbreaking but risky series. When we first set out to make this show, I was told, you're going to make a little show about lesbians. You know, no, you're not going to cast any stars. People will be afraid of this. That's Eileen Chaikin, creator of The L Word, a show about a group of lesbian friends living in the West Hollywood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Eileen was working on the show's pilot and had one role left to cast. The old sea captain was this old school lesbian from back in the day. We were looking to really nail it with this last role and cast somebody meaningful, somebody that would be, you know, arresting, would get everyone's attention. Eileen met with the head of Showtime, who gave her some advice. You know what's going to get your show on the air? Casting Pam Greer. Pam became the sea captain, and they shot a pilot. But after reviewing the episode, it was clear the character wasn't working. Eileen didn't want to lose Pam, so she created a new role. She recast Pam as Kit, the straight sister to the show's lead, Jennifer Beals. Kit was a mom, a musician, and a recovering alcoholic. I went out as a musician, fell in love, had a son, had, you know, on-the-road rocker, background singer, partying. Now it's time to chill out, come home, see my sister, and have my sister pretty much try to rehabilitate me. I was having a drink the other night when David called, and I haven't had one since. It's been two days. I'm going to try The way, ultimately, that she portrayed that character was so powerful, struggling with her demons, overcoming them, slipping and backsliding. You shouldn't be drinking, kid. And who do I have to thank for that? Female friendships are rare in many of Pam's films. In those 70s movies, Other women were generally her enemies. They were there for mud fights and bar brawls. The L word was different. It was made by women, women who understand the value of friendship. And I was like the den mother to all these, you know, women, young women and girls who had come from different places. There were Punjabi, Hindi, you know, Muslim um, gay women and uh, different classes economically. But we had fun, you know, being in this uh, fantasy that we had, we shared. Ladies and a few gentlemen, this is a dream come true. You know, Pam's triumph has been, to some degree, outliving her super cool, super sexy black exploitation persona and has just become this fantastic actress that has had a 40-year career, if not longer. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Pam dated here and there. She had a couple of serious relationships, but in the end, they didn't work out. I didn't fit a mold for all of them. That's why it didn't didn't last. Because I made the decision to uh, love me more, grow more, 
not grow because someone tells me when to grow or how to grow. That feels especially true when Pam looks back on the men in her life during the 1970s. I didn't chase Kareem. I didn't chase Richard. I didn't chase Freddie, none of them who I really love. But I loved a part of them. I didn't love them completely because they didn't have good habits. I can't marry you because you're going to mess up my life. So I am going to choose family and myself. There were times when that choice wasn't easy, times when Pam got lonely or when she felt others were judging her. When women said, I know I'm validated if I'm married, but if you're not married, you're not worthy. I was single and very successful and doing everything the men did that my grandfather told me to do. It's not clear to me that Pam ever really wanted to get married. Or maybe the marriage she wanted just didn't seem possible. One where her career mattered just as much as her partner's. Where her fame wouldn't be an issue. Where she could travel at the last minute to a movie set and be gone for three or four months. And there are many times I thought of just, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm good to go. I want to go home and just have the farm and goats and kids and raise them and take them to the mountains and ski and then take them to the beach so they can surf and, you know, just do everything. Uh, Be a well-rounded, you know, uh, human being. I thought of that many, many times. And I really would have enjoyed that. I really would have. But I don't find it a tragedy because I think there's, you know, maybe a fatalist, but there is a reason for everything. And sometimes you can't find the answers. Pam doesn't say much about her current relationship, except that she's taking it slow. Come on now. You know, I'm going to, you know, I just, I'm just going to let the, the, the truth and the trust develop first. You know, that's really important. And Pam keeps working. She had a role in a movie shot over the summer, And in a TV series on Amazon, she's busy. At 73, her world has not gotten small. It's tempting to think what it would be like if 20-year-old Pam and her Aunt Mignon drove from Denver to Hollywood today. If Pam Greer were up and coming right now, I think that she would have a wider range of filmmakers to work with. That would be my hope. Who would be able to see the talent and the complexity that she brings to her movie roles, as well as her physicality, because I don't want to sort of take that off the table. My name's Coffin. I think that she would find herself in a climate where she was allowed to be more fully human and whole in her film roles, as opposed to having to sort of fight to bring that herself into her parts. What is it you really want? Justice. She is a symbol of a pretty glorious past in terms of Black representation, but also a symbol of what Black representation could still be. See the mountains to my right, to our left, plains. It was last February when we started working on this podcast. Yeah. Do you want me to go? Oh, yeah, I'm good. Oh. I remember driving down a highway in Santa Fe, New Mexico with a small crew. What time is it? Like, what time do we get up to do all this? 
we woke up this morning at, uh, I woke up at 6.30, and then again at 6.51, <laughs> and uh, to get out here to see Pam Greer on her ranch by 8 o'clock. Already made a wrong turn. We were trying to get to Pam's ranch in time to feed her horses. And I think that's, that's her place up ahead, yeah? We found Pam's house on 12 acres of flat land, a farm windmill on one side, a barn on the other. It's beautiful. This is beautiful. And that is Pam Greer dancing to our right. All right now. <laughs> this is the place. Hello, Pam. Good morning. <laughs> Pam was dancing next to a small SUV with the doors wide open, the stereo blaring the talking heads. Welcome to the rancho. She was wearing a cowboy hat and aviator sunglasses. Come on now. That's how I greet everybody. When we pulled up, I couldn't hear the music, and so I didn't know you were dancing to actual music. I was like, Absolutely. I meet everybody here with my environment. My animals are waiting. They're like, oh, shit. We going to rock today. Mama's here. Come on, ladies. We managed to get the horses fed and inspect Pam's well. You're opening the well? I'd help you, but I have no idea what to do. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. I didn't know then what horses meant to Pam, that they had always made her feel less alone in the world. That was the first of three days of interviews with Pam. Days of laughing and a lot of talking. It wasn't always easy to follow, but she and I would always find a way to connect again. She'd sing, and when she told stories, you felt her history unfolding. Rooms you weren't in came to life. Those three days feel like a long time ago now, but among the things I'll remember forever will be that arrival. Pam danced in silhouette during the opening credits of Foxy Brown. Imagine the joy of finding Pam Greer 48 years later dancing in the early morning hours under a desert sky. I wake up and say, I'm alive. Jeez, I'm alive. I can't believe it. That's a milestone for me. In our crazy world, it really is. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitone, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, 
Their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tavish. TCM's general manager is Bola Shagna. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. Stay tuned for bonus episodes featuring some of my favorite interviews from the season. This has been Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from TCM. I'm Ben Mankiewicz. All of us at TCM are so glad you listened.